How much does your Christian faith inspire your life? If I asked you after Mass, on a scale of one to 10, one being I'm baptized, and 10 being I will drop my nets and follow you, Jesus, wherever you want me to go, where would you be on the spectrum? Where would you place yourself on that spectrum of how much you allow the gift of your faith to inspire, motivate, and direct your life? Because before we can get to the question of the hating all of those people that are really nice and why should we hate those good people, the question first is about this intentionality. And I found it interesting reading this gospel that Jesus almost forms a sandwich in the gospel. That there's this really reckless action of hating mother, father, spouse, brothers, and sisters, and carrying your cross, and then finishes with give away all your possessions. And then sandwiched in between are these two examples of really intentional and precise action from the one who builds the tower and the one who wages war. And so what is he getting at? He's getting at this intentionality of the way that we approach the Christian life of discipleship, right? Because sometimes we might be like, you know, I really want to build a tower. Be great. Or I'm going to build a tower. Or, you know, it'd really be nice to win this war so that I can protect my people. Or we're going to win this fight. I'd really like to go to heaven. That'd be a nice place to end up. I'm going to heaven, and I will do what it takes to be one that is received into God's glory. This intentionality is the reason for this discussion about being precise and planning ahead, and am I willing to do what it takes to get to the outcome of what's being offered? And Jesus throws this back at the very large crowds that are listening, listening to him, that are following him for all sorts of different reasons. Are you really willing to do what it takes to be my disciple? Or would you just like to get a nice healing every once in a while and hear some nice words about how to live a good life? Do you really want to be my disciple? See, when he says to hate your mother and father and your spouse and your brother and sister and even your life itself. What he's saying is, are you willing to put me above everything else so that everything else feeds into your relationship with me? It's kind of a way of speaking in Jewish tradition of hyperbole, overemphasizing something for the sake of making a point. And so obviously we're not supposed to hate our parents. The fourth commandment is honor your mother and father. So Jesus isn't saying stop honoring your mother and father. But what he is saying is are you willing to place me as even more important in your life than your mother and father, than your spouse, than your brother and sister? Because that's what it takes to be my disciple. And then he asks for two more renunciations, giving things up to carry your cross, to give up comfort for the sake of bearing your burdens and the burdens of others. And then finishes with give away all your possessions. Because more often than not, what we need to do in the Christian life 
is to give things up rather than to take things up. Because it's only in the giving up of things that we actually make space in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives for Jesus. How do we place Jesus above everything? Because sometimes the temptation for us in being Christian is that we live in the world and then I have this Christian life and I try to see how this Christian life fits in the world that I live. One of the ways that we've done that over the last number of decades is reducing Christianity to moralism. And I know I've said that before. Reducing the Christian life to just a moral structure to guide the way that we choose right and wrong. And there's a recent term that talks about the consequence of this. It's a fancy word, but it needs something simple. Moralistic therapeutic deism. What does that mean? That there are many Christians out there living the Christian life as they see it, that it's just about a moral life that makes me feel good. And God can offer me that. So I believe in God insofar as he give, gives me a moral structure that makes me feel good in my life. And that's it. That's what it gets reduced to. The Christian life is infinitely greater than just a moral guide. It's not just about being good, it's about being a disciple. See, we're not living in the world and then Christianity, we see which parts fit into the world that we live in. We begin with the ideal of the Christian life and we allow that to push us through the world that we're living in. That this gift of hating mother and father, of carrying our cross, of giving up our possessions, we take that and then we see how that allows us to navigate through what this world is for us. This is part of the story of Onesimus that we heard in this very short letter of Paul in his letter to Philemon. The background is that Onesimus was a slave to one of the Christians, and he ran away. He ran away from his master and ran to Paul. Now what Paul is writing back to the community, back to Philemon, who was his master, is he's saying, Onesimus has been a real brother to me. And I'm going to send him back to you. And when I send him back to you, I don't want you to take him back as a slave. I want you to take him back as a brother. Think about how much both of those men would have to give up for that to actually happen. For Philemon, he had to give up his right to Onesimus as his slave, and he had to be humble enough to treat him like a brother. For Onesimus, he had to swallow his pride and face the one that could rightfully judge him for the wrong that he did, and also to treat one who was formerly his master as a brother. This renouncing of the way of the world for the sake of the gospel that each one of us is a brother and sister in Christ, right? It's part of the reason that in our Catholic tradition, we have religious and priests. That part of the reason for their existence, for our existence, is that religious, in their vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, the renouncing of these things of the world, it's to be a gift back to all of you that, look, it's really worth making Jesus 
the most important person in your life. Here's how much we're willing to give up to make him the heart of our life, to be a gift back to you, till you can see in your own life how important it is. See, sometimes when I talk to people, they think kind of one or two things, that priests come from this magical place, maybe growing on a tree, and then they just magically appear, or that we've probably wanted to be a priest since we were five years old, and we just went all the way through seminary and were ordained, and it was magical. It's not. Some people think, well, to be a priest, you must not like women and you must not like children because you're not going to be married and have children. Quite the opposite. I had my wife picked out already. But what God grew in my heart through my discernment, through the big struggle of discernment in seminary, was I saw this good of marriage, I saw this good of priesthood. And what he grew in my heart was this willingness to accept that loving the church, Christ's body, was worth it. To give up this other good for that sake. And now I will spend the rest of my life figuring that out because the decision was made in a moment, but now the consequences come. But there's a giving up of something good for the sake of something better. It's not giving up bad things for a good thing. That's an easy choice. Jesus is calling us to give up even good things for the sake of making him the center and heart of our life. And so when we bring our children up in the faith, the things that we usually bring first is God loves you and do good things to other people, which yes, is important and part of the faith, but in time, they can find love through other ways in life, sometimes broken ways. They can find ways to do good in the world that don't come from the Christian life. How much do we teach our children to be disciples? To be willing to give up good things in their life for the sake of being a disciple of Jesus? How much is that part of the way that we catechize them and grow them in the Christian life? Because if that is their meaning and purpose in their life, the temptations of the world will have much less influence over them. Have you ever asked yourself what made the apostles willing to uproot their life in an instant to follow Jesus wherever he went? But in some ways, you are already doing it. There are parts of your life that have forced you to do it. For those of you that are married to a non-Catholic or a non-practicing Catholic, every Sunday when you come to Mass without them is a giving up of something good for the sake of something better. Or when you're at a family gathering and you have to leave the family gathering to go to Mass on Sunday. Or whether when you're with your friends or family and having discussions and you are the only person in the crowd who has a different opinion about euthanasia or abortion or same-sex marriage. Each one of those choices in your life is a saying no to a good thing, those relationships with those good people, to say yes to something better. And so you're there, but is Jesus asking for more? Are you a 10 on the scale of 1 to 10? 
Now with all of this, is this a big ideal that is lofty and hard and are we each one of us going to fall short? Yes. Which is why it's beautiful that if you go to the Gospel of Luke, what comes immediately after these words of Jesus? The three parables of God's mercy. The shepherd that goes after the one lost sheep, the woman who upturns her house for the one lost coin, and the prodigal son. We are given this ideal because it's something worth striving for of making Jesus the most important person of our entire life. But we're gonna fall short, which is why the gift of God's mercy is right there to follow, to bring us back.